who are joining us, have joined us since we've been in Isaiah, since we last looked at Isaiah. Megan and others joined us during my summer hiatus, which is an excuse for Rob's really excellent study through 1 Peter. It was really rich, and what I really appreciated about it, he had a completely different take. He came at 1 Peter from a, from a completely different angle than I did when I taught through it a few years ago, but that's the Bible, right? The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're never going to fully plumb the depths of God's Word. There's always a new perspective, another layer, something else, something more, something deeper. It was weird, though, even, and I've done it a, a few times lately for different reasons, weird even taking a Wednesday Hiatus. It's not like I was gone all summer. Some denominations do that. Some de denominations, the norm is for the pastor to just disappear during the summer, take the summer off. In fact, the first time I ever taught from the pulpit in a church, that's not true. It was the second time. The first time doesn't count because I wasn't actually saved. And that's the whole story. <laughs> It's a true story, but it's a story. But the first time I ever taught as a spirit-filled believer was filling in for a Baptist pastor in a little church in New Jersey that thought that they had arranged for a seminary and a seminary student to cover during the summer because that was the typical arrangement and he never showed up. So I covered for a couple, three weeks. But I mean, but, but, that, so much happens over the summer. I don't know how as a, as, a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, you just disconnect. There, there are times that I'd like to, but anyway, different ways of doing church. And I'm rambling. And my point was is that we've got some new folks with us and some other folks who have slept since we last looked at Isaiah together. It's been like three or four months, so I thought it would be good to invest an evening in getting on the same page. My friends in corporate America talk about onboarding, getting everybody on board. I like it. I think it works. So we're going to do that. We're going we're to onboard together. We're going to get on the same page together because next week we're going to pop the clutch. We're going to get into chapter 40 next week, Lord willing. And that's some good stuff, some deep stuff. So by way of review, let's begin at the beginning. Isaiah. The name is Hebrew, obviously. It's a compound word. It's a compound of the Hebrew verb to save and the tetragamatron, Y-H-W-H, that we commonly, though probably incorrectly, pronounced Yahweh. Put those together, you get Yahweh is salvation or the salvation of Yahweh. That's the meaning of Isaiah. If you pronounce it, it's typically in, in the Hebrew, it can be rendered Yeshaya. If that sounds familiar, it's very similar to Yeshua, Jesus, or Yehoshua, Joshua, the same roots and very similar meaning, of course. Isaiah's father was Amos, 
We read that seven times in the book of Isaiah. I don't know why it's significant, but it would seem to be. Seven times, all in the section that we've read together so far, chapters 1 to 39. There's a rabbinic tradition that says that Amos, Isaiah's father, and Amaziah, king of Judah, were brothers. It's a tradition. There's no real evidence for it, but interesting. We don't know much about Isaiah's wife. We know that she's called a prophetess in Isaiah 8, verse 3. But we don't even really know what that means because it could mean that she prophesied or it could mean simply she was the wife of a prophet. We don't have any of her prophecies if she in fact prophesied. We don't know anything about her. We know that Isaiah had sons. We know their names. We don't know much other than the names, but the names are significant. Shear Jazhub, a remnant will return, and Maha Shalal Hashbaz, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Both of those obviously prophetic names, and we got into that when we came across them in Isaiah 7 and 8. But let's back up a little bit. We talked a little bit about Isaiah's family tree here. We know obviously that he was a prophet, but let's talk about the historical context in which he prophesied. And that's the subject of some controversy, it turns out. We typically point at Isaiah 6.1, in the year King Uzziah died, which we know to be 740 BC, as the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, as marking his call to ministry. And that's possible. Other scholars believe that that might mark a different chapter, a new chapter, another section of his ministry. If that sort of thing bugs you, if you need to get to the bottom of it, let me know what you find when you get there. Because I don't know what I think. I've poked around a, a bit, but just enough to get myself to the I keep changing my mind stage. I read one person, oh, that makes sense. And then I read someone else, oh, that makes sense too. I think what's more helpful tonight, if we stay big picture, Either way, Isaiah begins his ministry when Uzziah is king. And let's back up even further and get some context for that. David is king from 1010 BC until 970 BC or so. Solomon follows David from 970 to 930. The kingdom divides in 930. Uzziah becomes king a little bit more than a century after that in 792 B.C. And Uzziah is generally considered a good king. If you look at those tables of good kings and bad kings, Israel's kings, of course, the northern kingdom, all bad all the time. Judah had some good kings and some bad kings. Uzziah generally considered one of the better ones, a good king who sadly stumbles at the finish line. During his reign, it's interesting to note while Uzziah was king, Jeroboam II was king of Israel. And together, Uzziah in the south, Jeroboam II in the north, can, together they expanded the kingdom, though it was divided, to more or less the same extent that it occupied under Solomon. We often say Israel has never been as, as large geographically never as strong politically as under Solomon, and that's true. But geographically, though divided, the combined expanse rivaled the kingdom under Solomon. 
important because that's the context in which Isaiah begins prophesying with Judah and Israel both ascendant, both rising in power and influence. Uzziah in particular was quite the conqueror, overcomes the Philistines, overcomes the Edomites. Second Chronicles 26 tells us he was even respected among the Egyptians, and that wasn't an easy get in his day. That's saying something, that the Egyptians had regard for him politically, economically, militarily. But pride goeth before the fall, of course. As I said earlier, Uzziah stumbles at the finish line. He was apparently so impressed with himself that he took it upon himself to enter the temple, you know the story, and burn incense at the altar of incense. Bad move, Uzziah. That was a priestly function, specifically reserved for the priests by God. And as a result, God gives Uzziah leprosy. The lesson, obviously, is we shouldn't confuse the fact that God is blessing our lives, that we are enjoying prosperity with God's unmitigated, unqualified approval. We fall into that sometimes. I said I was hanging around with some old-time, long-time friends from New Jersey. When we get together, not always, but sadly, often enough, the conversation turns to people who are no longer with us. And one of the common refrains, and I'm sure that you have your own stories, one of the common themes, through lines, things that, that people who fall away from the Lord have in common, is they confuse prosperity with approval. Pastors say, well, my church is growing. People keep tithing. Hands keep going up when I give a gospel invitation. The worship leader says, people keep singing. People are, 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 are singing louder. They're raising their hands in praise. God must be pleased. God must be looking past this other thing going on in my life. And it's true not just for those of us who minister on the platform. It's true for all of us. I got a promotion at work. I've got a new girlfriend. God's blessed me with a great new home. Oh, my, my kids are, 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 are doing great. They're giving me grandchildren. God must love me and approve of everything that I'm doing. It doesn't always go that way. Uzziah reminds us of that. God blesses us because he's God. God blesses us even while we're in sin because he's merciful, because he's slow to anger because he's giving us time to repent. Uzziah contracts leprosy. He's unable to carry out all the duties of a king, and so he lives out the remainder of his days in isolation. His son Jotham becomes co-regent with him. They share the throne from 750 to 740 BC, obviously. After Uzziah dies in 740, Jotham becomes the sole king of Judah from 740 until 735 for another five years. Like his father, genuinely considered one of the better kings of Judah, but not a great king, not a Josiah 
tier of king? What kept him from that standing? Scripture says largely the fact that neither he nor his father, neither Jotham nor Uzziah, destroyed, tore down the high places. What were the high places? They were places that were probably originally erected as centers of idol worship, but in his day were often centers of worshiping the true and living God from a place that God didn't ordain in a way that God didn't ordain. It was false worship of the true God. God had called that out on many, many occasions. And yet, because the south saw the example of the north, because the southern kingdom saw the northern kingdom from the beginning say, we're not going to trek all the way down to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. We're going to erect golden calves and we're going to worship God there. They were, they were loath to go hardline on this point. And it was something that God had against them. They were loath to inconvenience the people. They were loath to call the people out that worship is not always convenient, but always appropriate. And God said, mm, that's keeping you from being great. I'll let you think about that on your own. After Jotham comes Ahaz. And this is where things get interesting. Uzziah, Jotham, pretty good guys. Ahaz was a bad guy, was a bad king. 2 Kings 16, we read beginning in verse 3, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, false worship of the true God, but worse than that, indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So he indulged in Canaanite worship, and he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. So you've got golden calf worship, you've got worship of Baal, Canaanite worship, you've got worship of Molech, Ammonite worship, all there in just two verses. Now, while that's going on morally, religiously, things are also developing politically. During the reign of Ahaz in the south, Israel in the north is aligning itself with Syria, with designs on conquering Judah. We get that from 2 Kings 15.37. This leads to a pivotal face-to-face, -face, a conversation that we referenced often in our study through chapters 1 through 39. In chapter 7, we're not going to turn there tonight, but in chapter 7, God, through Isaiah, says to Ahaz, trust me, I'll deal with Israel, I'll deal with Syria as well. Ahaz says, hmm, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to do something else. He hears what God says through Isaiah and runs in the other, runs in the other direction. Instead of running to God, he runs to Assyria and says, let's, let's be allies, Judah and Assyria. Let's be allies together against Israel and Syria between us. Doesn't that make sense? To make matters worse, 
in traveling to Damascus to cement this relationship, to meet with Tilgath Peleazar, king of Assyria at the time, Ahaz sees this impressive altar. He says, oh, I love that. Oh, I have to have that. Comes back to Judah and orders one just like that built and installed in the temple that Solomon had built. And God says, oh, I hate that. <laughs> so groups, we know this, groups take on the qualities of their leaders. Under Ahaz, Judah begins accelerating its descent, its downward spiral to the point where God is going to be forced to judge them. Slow to anger, but eventually a good and righteous king must judge or he's neither good nor righteous. And a great deal of Isaiah's prophecies in the first half of the book have to do with that coming judgment, right? The description of the judgment. An exhortation, repeated exhortation, to turn from judgment. God's saying, I know that you're not going to, and you're going to force me to bring judgment. And the promise that even in judgment, God will remember mercy, Habakkuk 3.2. I say knowing that they won't because God, A, is omniscient, knows everything. B, is outside of time. So God, on the one hand, is, is exhorting them to turn because they have the choice. They have the free will. They have the opportunity to turn, to repent, God simply knows they won't avail themselves of the opportunity. So he's delivering this, this, this two-part message. You really should turn, but when you don't, <laughs> here's what's waiting. For a time, it looks like they might. After Ahaz comes Hezekiah. After Ahaz, who reigns from 735 to 715, comes Hezekiah, who reigns from 715 to 687. And Hezekiah was almost, almost as good as Ahaz was bad. Scripture even says in some respects he was better than David, and David kind of sets the bar, right? How is he better than David? He cleared out all of the shenanigans that his father had committed in the temple. He tore down the high places. He resumed celebrating Passover. He even sent out missionaries. He was a pretty good king for quite a while. But as we saw when we left off a few months ago, even as Judah starts regaining her footing, morally speaking, religiously speaking, Assyria is advancing. Assyria is growing, gaining in strength, gaining in territory. And as Assyria advances, Hezekiah flinches. God gives Hezekiah essentially the same opportunity he gave his grandfather. D different way, but it's this, it amounts to the same thing. God says to Hezekiah a bunch of different times, a bunch of different ways, trust me. Hezekiah instead repeats the mistake, the sin of his grandfather. With, with Ahaz, it was Assyria. With Hezekiah, it's Egypt against Assyria, looking for human means for his, to, to get out of his, his predicament 
looking for political rather than spiritual deliverance. And starting in chapter 30, maybe even a little bit before, we see the predictable results. Sennacherib, who by 701 is the, the still relatively new king of Assyria, begins to march south. And he conquers everything in sight. Conquers Edom, conquers Moab, conquers Ammon, conquers Tyre, conquers Sidon, conquers much of Philistia, turns back, routs the Egyptian army that Hezekiah had pinned his hopes on, sends them running, takes the city of Ekron, takes all of the fortified cities of Judah, one after another. Second to last one is Lachish, lays siege to Lachish. And after Lachish, the only fortified city left in Judah was Jerusalem. So things from seeming like they were getting really good under Hezekiah very quickly seem very, very bad. Because as Sennacherib's army lays siege to Lachish, the result seems inevitable. The fall of Jerusalem seems like it's only going to be a matter of time. So even before, and Sennacherib thinks so, because even before he's dispensed with Lachish, he's already, chapter 36 of Isaiah, he's already sending emissaries to negotiate with Hezekiah. Negotiate, present an ultimatum, to deliver terms of surrender. And, and, he, and, 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 and if we look in 2 Kings 18, it happens progressively. 2 Kings 18, the parallel passage, initially it's, we want you to release the king of Ekron so he can go back and, and be reinstalled as regent because he was our ally. And then we want you to pay us a ton of money. Hezekiah does both of those things. He tries appeasement. But after he, he succumbs, after he, he capitulates on those points, Sennacherib has just one more demand. Oh yeah, and surrender Jerusalem to us and tell all of your people to prepare for deportation because we're going to march them out of the country. This is where Hezekiah draws the line. He draws the line and he prays, finally, and God answers his prayer. Isaiah 37, verse 35, God says, I will defend this city, Jerusalem, Isaiah 37, 35, I will defend the city and rescue it for my sake and the sake of my servant David. What does that mean? David's been dead for centuries. Yeah, but God has promises to keep. Promises that he made to David back in 2 Samuel. Promises that he will fulfill through the line of David. None of the messianic prophecies promises can be fulfilled if Sennacherib is allowed to wipe out the line of David. And so we read in Isaiah 37, before Sennacherib's troops even reach Jerusalem. I've taught this inaccurately in the past, not recently, but I know that somewhere there are tapes of me getting this wrong. Before Sennacherib's troops even reach Jerusalem, 185,000 of them are killed. Civil War buffs, just for perspective. 185,000 is roughly the number of troops at Gettysburg, both sides put together, wiped out overnight. But of course, that's not the end of the story. 
That whole episode foreshadows another siege of Jerusalem, one that hasn't happened yet, one that's still future for us. A siege of Jerusalem by the armies of Antichrist that will likewise be abruptly stopped. The armies destroyed, the troops decimated by Jesus returning to conquer. Isaiah 37, 36 says that the 185,000 Assyrian troops were killed by the angel of the Lord. It's interesting, if you read commentators, a lot of them squirm when they read that. They concede, because they have to, the angel of the Lord often, usually, denotes a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, a Christophany. But, but, but not this time. Why not? Well, because, because all of the death. That, that's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't kill thousands and thousands. He's going to do it again. He does it when he returns and makes his way to Jerusalem. And no one questions that. Except for our preterist friends, but that's another story. <clears throat> the entire book of Isaiah, of course, is, is rife. It's overflowing with prophecies like this. Not every, but most prophecy on Isaiah has both a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. A few even have an intermediate-term fulfillment. Short-term in the days of Isaiah or the days immediately following Isaiah long-term, the days of the tribulation, some of them have an intermediate-term fulfillment in the days that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee. But back to 701 B.C. and the slaughter of the 185,000 <clears> should have been a turning point. Should have brought about revival, right? Remember back with, with, with Ahaz, chapter 7, God says to Ahaz through Isaiah, I'll deliver you. I'll deliver you, and I want you to believe me. I'm promising, and I want you to believe my promise, so ask for a sign. Pick a sign, any sign, and I'll, I'll perform it, and that'll prove it. Ahaz, of course, said, no, 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 I couldn't. I couldn't possibly. Here, God does essentially the same thing, except he picks the sign. Hezekiah says, God, deliver me, and God says, okay, let's do that. Let's call that the sign. I'm going to give you what you asked for. And he gives Hezekiah one of the most amazing signs in the whole New, oh, sorry, Old Testament, wipes out an advancing army. After, I forgot to mention, after heals Hezekiah of a terminal illness in chapter 38. Really two miraculous signs, one national, one personal. But when we left off a few months ago, we saw Hezekiah, and by extension, Judah not really taking that lesson to heart should have brought about revival, should have settled their hearts forever. Instead, they kind of let the lesson slip onto their hands like a bar of soap in the shower. What was the lesson? The lesson was God is God, and we need to let him be God. We need to let him be God of the land in, in Judah, 
We need to let him be God of our lives, all of us. But chapter 39, we see Babylon now sending emissaries to Judah. And people squabble about the timing here. Was this before or after Sennacherib's invasion? If it's after the invasion, Merodach Baladan, the, the, the king of Babylon, was impressed by the victory because he'd been trying to throw off a serious yoke for some time before Sennacherib's advance. Now, when Sennacherib advances, when he marches to the south, defeats Babylon along with everyone else, but maybe, maybe in concert with Judah, they could team up and they could push back on Assyria. At that time, I'm in chapter 39, at that time, verse 1, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the ointment, all of his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Uh-oh. He didn't, he showed them everything. He told them nothing about God. Nothing about God delivering him from a fatal illness. Nothing about God, if this indeed is after Sennacherib's invasion, nothing about God delivering them from an attack. And, and if we read the second passage in Second sorry, the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles. Flip over there if you like, otherwise you can listen. But this parallel passage in 2 Chronicles makes it really clear that was the point of the exercise. The king of Babylon had his own reasons for visiting, but God had an agenda in the whole interaction. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31 Regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him, to Hezekiah, to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. That's why I suspect this was after uh, Sennacherib's defeat. God withdrew from him. He pulled back from Hezekiah. He stood back and watched. Why? In order to test him that he, God, might know all that was in his, Hezekiah's, heart. Go back to verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death and prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Lifted up in pride, in other words. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and over Jerusalem. Now, back in Isaiah 39, we read that Hezekiah repents. The Lord said to Hezekiah, Hear, let me back up. Isaiah to the prophet, verse 3, comes to Hezekiah and says to him, Okay, what just happened? And Hezekiah tells him. And Isaiah asks, verse 4, what have they seen? And I, Hezekiah tells him. There's repentance there. And the, 
Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they'll take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And there shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That was God's mercy. I'm going to judge because I have to judge because you leave me no choice but to judge. But because you've repented, I will, I will suspend the sentence. I'll delay it sometime. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, okay, that's good at least. At least that there'll be peace and truth for some time. But God's judgment still stands. His judgment against Hezekiah, but, but as king, so go country. God's judgment against Hezekiah and, and the country of Judah for her pride, for her rebellious heart, for her insistence on self-sufficiency, her refusal to embrace the dependency that God calls us all to, despite miracles, despite prophets, despite God's presence. God says, yeah, you're going to be carried off into captivity. And the remainder of the book of Isaiah, where we're going to start again next week, chapter 40 to the end, Isaiah speaks primarily of that time. He, he, he places himself forward in time. He speaks, as it were, in the prophetic present tense. We talk about sometimes about the, the prophetic uh, past tense where Jesus or, or, or a prophet speaks of something as if it's already happened. For the remainder of this book, Isaiah is going to speak primarily, consistently, as if something is happening that in fact in his day hasn't happened yet. He's going to speak to those who are captive as if it's unfolding in real time because he knows, because God has promised, it's going to. Babylon, of all the countries, tiny little insignificant Babylon is going to rise up and is going to overthrow Judah and carry off her people. Historically, hasn't happened yet. And, and, and it's not going to happen in, in Isaiah's day. Hezekiah is the last king under whom Isaiah prophesies. But he knows it's coming because God said so. And in 612 BC, Babylon, in fact, conquers Assyria. And under Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C., Babylon conquers Egypt and subjugates Judah. That's the first wave of deportation. When Judah rebels, they capture Jerusalem. This is 597, and that's the second wave of deportation. And when they keep pushing back, they destroy the walls, they destroy the temple, and they carry the leaders off to Babylon. That's the third wave of deportation. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. More history than Bible study tonight, or at least more, more overview than, than in-depth. 30,000 feet rather than down in the weeds. Next week, we'll get back down in the weeds. Next week, we'll start verse by verse. And chapter 40 is just majestic. All of Isaiah is majestic, but chapter 40 is... But you know, sometimes from 30,000 feet that the big picture shows us things that we don't lay hold of in the same way when we're down in the weeds. Reviewing chapters 1 through 39 
tonight, the thing that jumps out at me, and God might be speaking something different to you, but the thing that I can't get away from, God keeps his promises. Sometimes it takes years or decades or centuries. God keeps his promises. Right at the end, the, the, the judgment that God pronounces against Hezekiah. He pronounces it in 701 B.C. The fulfillment doesn't begin for more than 100 years. But Isaiah right away starts prophesying because he knows it's coming. God said it. It's going to happen. God made a promise. He's going to keep it. In Jesus' day, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., that was 40 years after Jesus said it was going to happen. The return of Christ. We know it's coming. We've been waiting 2,000 years for it to happen. The first coming of Christ. From the time that God first speaks of it in Genesis 3.15 until the occasion of it, conservatively, and an absolute minimum 4,000 years, perhaps much longer. From the last prophet, not counting John, until the coming of Jesus, 400 years. What are you waiting for tonight? What has God promised you that you haven't seen yet? What has he promised in his word, through prophecy, through prayer? What has God spoken to you that hasn't materialized? If tonight doesn't remind you of anything else, it should remind you God is not slack the way some Defines slackness, 2 Peter 3 9. Are you waiting for relief? Waiting for justice, deliverance? God's promised us lots of things about lots of things. And all of them are coming. Not always in the timing we want. Not always in the form, in the manner that we would prefer. But they're coming. The lesson that we have, even an overview tonight, God keeps his promises and consider this. It always turns out good for those who remember that, who hold on to that, who cling to that, who trust in that. It always turns out good for them. And it always ends poorly for those who forget it, doubt it, disregard it. Let's cling to his promises.